Hey, Edge of Sports listeners, this is Dave Zirin. If you live in Seattle, you got to come out to Town Hall Seattle on January 5th. I will be interviewing Seattle Seahawk Michael Bennett, otherwise known as Moses Bread 72. I'm going to be talking to Michael Bennett about sports, politics, and everything in between by one of the most thoughtful guys out there. Details to get tickets in the description of this podcast. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Today is our year-end show, and I'm going to speak about the joy and resistance sports gave us while the world simply seemed to burn. But first, I have Vice Sports contributing editor Patrick Ruby. For the uninitiated, that's Ruby, H-R-U-B-Y, on his article, Friday Night Lights Out, The Case for Abolishing High School Football. This article is making waves, people. So glad to have Patrick on the show. So you interviewed lots of folks who are you know, running for school board. You talked to doctors. You talked to people mm-hmm. tr- making this case that there should not be high school football. What is their case? What is their argument? How would you sum it up? Well, it sort of breaks down along three lines. So essentially, there's a medical case, which is the thing we're all kind of familiar or more familiar with now, where we know football can cause brain damage. And we know the risk now is a lot more significant than we used to think. We used to think basically – Okay, skull fractures, worst case scenario, you could die from that. That's a pretty big risk. We came up with plastic hard shell helmets. These same helmets that protect against skull fractures do not protect against concussion, nor do they protect against, and this is the really big deal, the series of subconcussive blows that players take every season, you know, 500, 800, 1,000, sometimes 1,500 hits to the head in a single season. And the more we study this, the medical science community studies this, the more they realize those add up. They're creating a larger risk of brain damage. Now, they're not sure how that correlates with the really long-term bad neurodegenerative diseases we're seeing in former college and NFL players. And they're not sure in the short term even, you know, they can put these kids' brains into scanners and see that there are changes going on. They can give them sort of neurocognitive testing and see that their performance is degrading over the course of a season. They're not sure if that's permanent or not right now because they're still studying it. But Every single small study that's done, it sort of points in the same direction that this is causing changes and damage to the brain. And that's really disturbing. Now, that feeds into sort of the second element of this is the ethical case. This is really simple. Schools have a special mission, protect and nurture young people's brains. Why would you sponsor an activity that is increasing the risk of damaging those same brains? So the sort of medical case and the ethical case are tied together. And then the third plank of it is what we just mentioned, the financial case, which is football is a very expensive sport. It's the most expensive high school sport. And a lot of people think, well, that's okay. It makes money. But actually, it doesn't really make money. Now, we don't have good national numbers on this. But the Dallas Morning News in 2011 looked at high schools in the Texas area. Texas, Friday Night Lights. This is the most excited place in the country, the biggest fan base, the most money you would think flowing into high school football. And all these schools in the Dallas area, the vast majority of them were losing money on football. Some of them were spending almost half a million dollars a year on football. I think only like three of them were actually making money on the sport. And you mentioned in the article a $70 million stadium that's in the works. Right, And where is that? That's in the Dallas suburbs, I believe? Right. So there's a $60 million stadium that was already built in the Dallas suburbs, and they had to actually put $10 more million into it before a game was ever played in it because the concrete foundation was cracked. So that's a lot of money. So you just laid out Mm -hmm. the case, ethical, Mm -hmm. financial, health. 
That's the arguments that the people you spoke to are making, people who are running for school board, people who are trying to raise this banner in the face of a lot of resistance. I got to ask you, do you find their case altogether persuasive? You know what? I actually do. Having gone through the process of reporting this, I looked at these elements, talked to people, looked at the numbers, uh, talked to the scientists who are studying this in terms of the brain damage aspect of it. It's hard to argue that this is necessarily something that belongs, again, in public schools. I'm not at the point where I think it should be banned, although I think it raises some very troubling ethical questions about sort of informed consent and should we allow children to actually do this, this sport? And I think as a society, we'll have to grapple with that at some point. We're not really there yet. But the specific idea of like, should this be in schools? It does seem pretty contrary to me to the mission of schools overall. However, I will say on the other side of it, talking to some coaches, talking to other people involved in schools, some of the benefits, again, that come out of this sport, if you're looking at sort of cost-benefit analysis, again, if you're looking at the financial part of it, you have to look at your return on investment. The idea of school spirit, the idea that kids can learn good lessons from this sport, Uh, they can learn bad ones too, if we've seen from a lost story. So that's a mixed bag. Those are real things though. Like there are real benefits. Yeah, I think people who want to ban high school football have to, at the very least, acknowledge the existence Mm -hmm. of the fact that people feel so strongly about this. The part of football and Mm -hmm. banning it and the issue of head injuries that to me has always been twisty and difficult to untangle is I know people, and I'm sure you know people who've compared it to smoking. Yep. And, uh, you know, this idea that there's no such thing to make a safe cigarette, just like there's no such thing, despite mm-hmm. what the propagandists of the NFL tell us, right. as a safe football game. Right. There's no such thing. But at the same time, and this point was made to me by somebody we both know, either Mark or Steve Fainaroo, I did a panel with them. I forget which of the brilliant Fainaroo said this, but it's a really important point about the cigarette analogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference is that if you meet somebody, and tragically I have, who, who's dying of lung cancer or emphysema, mm-hmm. they will look at you and say, I wish I'd never picked up a cigarette. Right. You, meet, you, can, you meet people, and I've met people with CTE, ex-football players, and they may say, I don't want my son playing this. Right. But when you ask them, do you wish you'd never picked up a football, very rarely do they say yes. Not that some haven't. People mm-hmm. like Antoine Randall-L, mm-hmm. um, although that's more about his hips and his legs, like he's spoken about how he wishes he'd played baseball and not football. So I'm not saying those people don't exist. Dave Pear, of course, right. said he wished he'd never. But certainly the overwhelming number of ex-football players who I've spoken to, even the ones who don't want their sons to play, are like, I'm glad I played. And you don't get that from the ex-smoker. The smoking analogy is also imperfect because, again, there are benefits. There's no real benefit. There's no public health benefit. There's no any benefit, really, from people smoking. except okay, You look pe- cool. Oh, yeah. Okay. You look cool. <laughs> Sex, drugs, rock and roll. Like maybe, you know, okay, I guess nicotine feels good to that person in that moment. But on the whole, there's no sort of overall benefit. Whereas there's a lot of, again, there are pro-social benefits to high school football. Again, we, we need to acknowledge them and we need to weigh them against the cost and then fit that into the idea of like, is this what schools should be doing? Because I think there's, there's definitely like two things that could happen or three things that could really happen I see going forward. The first thing is like, there are definitely ways to make high school football as we know it safer. Now, would it be acceptably safe to what we deem to be acceptable? Again, I can't answer that. We have to grapple with that. But if you play less of the sport, that's the most simple and best way to make it safer. So for instance, right now in California and Texas, some high school seasons are 16 games long, depending on how deep you go into the state playoffs. 
Yeah, 16 games. That's like an NFL season. In the old days, it used to be like six or eight games. Right. We should go back to that. Like there should be fewer games, more time for your brain to literally heal and rest between games. The high school rank should completely follow the Ivy League and what we see in the NFL where you're taking hitting out of practice. I, you could take it out almost completely. The winningest college football team ever uh, is a Division three team up in Minnesota. Uh, the coach didn't have his players hit in practice for like 30 years. You can do it. You're you talking about St. John's. That's exactly right. John Galliardi. Is that right? That's right. I went to McAllister, which is in their mm-hmm. same conference, and they would beat us 198 to nothing. So right. Never, very familiar Never with tackled in practice. So yes. you can do that. That's something – I mean, right there, you're taking away so much – again, back to cigarettes, the idea with cigarettes – the more you smoke, the longer you smoke, the more exposure, the more risk. Mm. It looks like, from what we're seeing with the science, football works the same way in terms of brain trauma risk. So limit the exposure. That's one of the big things we could do. We also, of course, could switch to flag football in high school, which is not going to be popular because, let's be honest. It wouldn't people, be popular. People like the violence. That's yeah. what they love about the sport. But you could do that. You could also switch to flag football for kids playing before high school, again, limiting their exposure coming into those high school years. And if you're only playing a few years in high school and the seasons are shorter and you haven't had your brain getting beat up since age five because you're not in Friday Night Tykes and you play two or three years, you're probably talking about pretty small overall risk. But as you talk about in your article, it's kind of easy to say ban it until age 14. It's a tougher argument and in some ways a more necessary argument if we're solely talking about brain development Mm -hmm. to say ages 14 to 18, there shouldn't be either. Because, I mean, that's prime time puberty. That's prime time mental development. That's prime time making the jump between being a promising junior high school student Mm -hmm. to actually trying to prepare to go to college. Right. And so messing with your brain in that period, I mean, we're talking about messing with people's entire futures. I think I agree. That's, that's undeniable. No, and that's one of the things that scares some of the researchers I talk to, which is that window you're talking about of time. You know, the brain doesn't really fully stop developing until your mid 20s. And the stuff that's developing in high school is sort of like your sense of judgment. It's your frontal lobes. It's sort of your impulse control. All, you know, there's a reason teenagers do stupid things because yeah. literally the parts of their brain that keep you from doing dumb things are still wiring themselves. And so those researchers are very concerned that the high schooler's brain might actually be more vulnerable to the kinds of insults it's getting in football. And again, that factors not only medically but ethically into the case against this. You quote this argument that – is truly wacky from (laughs) a University of Minnesota neurosurgery professor and NFL consultant Uzma Samadani. And this is what she she wrote in uh, one of the main newspapers in the Twin Cities in an editorial. She wrote, ultimately, if we do not let our children play football, they may choose to skateboard off the roof. This type of activity is what they are biologically programmed to do. Now, come on. I agree with the impulse control stuff and high schoolers doing stupid things, but the presentation, and you have several more examples of this, mm-hmm. that basically young boys, what's being said without being said is they're basically feral rape murder monsters. Mm-hmm. And if they're not playing football, then it's just going to be like Vikings sacking a village. Not only is that to me like deeply insulting Mm-hmm. And biologically, extremely dicey to make this argument in a biologically deterministic way. Mm-hmm. It's it, also it's very dicey. It's also in a way like Trumpian yes. in that 
football, we have seen the team culture, the violence. There are mm-hmm. connections between football and rape culture. Right. And the idea of saying that if there's not football, right. there will be all these antisocial thing happenings as if football is a hedge against it. Right. Like I said, it's Trumpian. It's like accusing it you of something that you're the person who needs to be answering for. Right. It's the total Trump projection. Whatever you want to know what Trump is doing bad. It's see, rigged. See what he is pointing to someone else and accusing them of. Exactly. Bill Clinton. Exactly. But you know, what's, what's funny about this is I agree with you hundred percent, but when you go back and look at the history of football in our public schools and literally go back to the beginning of the 20th century, when the arguments are being made to put football in schools and keep football in schools, there's this long streak of this exact argument that like, not only do we need to use the sport to build men, to make men, but that, yeah, these wayward boys are going to get into all sorts of trouble if they're not playing football. One of the other things in the story I thought was hilarious in the 50s, and it always, by the way, this idea always shifts based on what we are concerned with as a society. So when we're concerned that kids are too soft, that was the original concern. Yeah, yeah. 1900 Chicago mayor, before you get to the 50s, mm-hmm. Carter Harrison II, really echoing a lot of the verbiage from Teddy Roosevelt, who mm-hmm. was famous for right. projecting this argument. This is what the Chicago mayor said. He said, if you legislate against football and boxing, the next generation will be a generation of sissy boys, end quote. And that really was the spreading and popularizing of the word sissy was to use as a descriptor for boys who wouldn't play football. That's right. And, and at that time, what was the culture as a whole worried about? Well, people were moving from agrarian life to the cities. They were moving from the farm to the factory. And there was this concern, oh, people are going to get soft. You know, mm-hmm. Again, we can laugh at it now, but that's what people were thinking at the time. And you hear it now all the time. Right, oh, my God, right. about as a society, we're becoming demasculinized. And- oh, I'd, ra- I'd, rather, I'd rather have my son playing football and sing around playing Xbox. You know, yeah. that's, a, that's the current version of that. Um, in the 50s, what were we worried about? The Cold War. Mm-hmm. One of my absolute favorite things I saw in oh, the history right. is, is I don't have the direct quote in front of me, and you might have it, but it's in the story. Basically, you know, a cultural commentator was arguing. It was Bill Stern. Yes. If we don't have these boys, not only not just playing football, but literally just in the stands cheering for high school mm-hmm. football, they'll be cheering in the Communist Party cell. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. That was Bill Stern in 1958. <laughs> Great pull by you, by the way. And then in the 60s, you always hear like we need football to fight against the hippies. That's right. And even though there were rebel football players at several schools, at other schools, football players were used as a way to break up student strikes, Mm -hmm. as a way to beat up protesters. Sometimes football players directly recruited to do just that. But I got to go back to Professor Samandani for a second. Now, These kinds of tortured, biologically deterministic arguments for Mm -hmm. the importance of football, particularly made by a PhD, who's also, by the way, an NFL consultant. I got to ask you, does anybody – do you have any record from your research of anyone who is not an NFL consultant or in some way, shape or form not on the NFL teat who makes these arguments publicly and confidently? Have you ever seen that? No, I haven't. It's always from people who are somehow connected to football. So only people who are tethered financially to right. the octopus squid that is that is the NFL are making these arguments. So is it unfair to say that people like Professor Samandani are, are bought? I, I mean, it's I mean, a hell of an right. accusation, but there's no way of getting around that. You know, if we don't want to say bought, we could say influenced. We could say that they have a they have a perspective. You could call it a bias. They're definitely coming from a certain point of view. The most charitable thing you could say for a lot of people, I think, is that for them, when they look at sort of the safety question about football, the onus isn't on proving 
that this is safe enough to play. It's proving that it's dangerous enough to not play. Mm. That's where I would say it really falls. And then all these other kinds of arguments sort of fall under that. Interesting. Now, the the one argument against mm-hmm. banning high school football that I find the most compelling, mm-hmm. given everything that we've discussed, the most comp- – I don't find compelling the argument that, oh, there's only been 200 CTE cases or cheerleading or soccer is more dangerous. To me, all that stuff there's is a lot just- of con- There's a lot of conflation when it comes to the different sports being more dangerous. Again, no other sport except for boxing has the same number of just repeated, again, right. sub-concussive head blows to the head. That's and the key every thing. other sport, there's the capacity for making it safe except for right. football, except for boxing right. and football. Every other and sport- every other sport, when you get hit in the head, it's an accident. Mm-hmm. It's not an accident in football. It's not an accident in boxing. Yeah. So to me, everything is a rationalization except for one thing. And it actually feeds into the – It's to me, it's like the conjoined twin of the school spirit argument. Right. And this is the question of what do we know happens in the United States historically when we enact prohibition. And so right. my concern is that the appetite for youth football – outstrips the power of law to say no to it. Mm -hmm. And so what would happen then? I think, I mean, I've made jokes before that would happen would be like people playing football in Texas, like in speakeasies with secret, (laughs) you know, not that's, that wouldn't happen. But I think what would happen would be a flocking to private schools that are probably on the right legal ground to be able to do it. And then things would be far less regulated than even today, because as you wrote in your article, there are now regulations that did not exist before with regards to things like concussion protocol in many right. school districts. And if it's all outsourced to private schools, as we've seen oftentimes with private education itself, right. there's no regulation and it becomes something that is not only highly corrupted, like the recruiting of poor kids for scholarships mm-hmm. to play for elite private schools, but that the kids would actually be in greater danger. What do you think about that? I argument? think that's a legitimate argument. Actually, uh, a football coach in Las Vegas I talked to, a guy named Mitch Morocco, who he's the opposite of any kind of stereotype you have of a meathead coach. He's an extremely caring guy, started as a PE teacher, gone to football sort of sideways, mostly just likes working with kids. I love that part of your article. Yeah, I mean, the could, Morocco again, profile. A, a great guy. The, the kind of guy you want coaching your kid any sport because he's in it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. We talked about this and, and you know, cause we brought, I brought up the point. If you got rid of high school football, yeah, you would definitely see like AAU football, travel ball, football, just like you actually see for a lot of high school sports already, you know, because a lot of people have asked me, Oh my God, well, how would kids get scholarship? If there's no high school football. Well, that's not the question really asking here, but the answer is there would be private programs for sure. And Rich brought the point. He would worry and he wasn't being self-serving about this. That exactly what you said. If you took it away from schools where there's more regulation and there are lots of people like him who are in it for the right reasons. There are some mini Nick Sabins in high school football too, but there are a lot of good people that are in coaching because they love kids. Yeah, you're reminding me of, of Joe Ehrman who coaches high school football at Gilman in mm-hmm. Baltimore and has written Coaching for Life and – it's it, totally like he's totally he's influenced by Howard Zinn in terms of how he coaches. And he's right. a former uh, Baltimore Colt, an right. amazing guy. And he talks about the difference between transactional and transformational coaches, mm-hmm. like people who are in it for themselves and their own ego gratification right. versus people who are in it for the development of right. young people. Right. And so I do think there is truth to the idea that like you might be creating more problems than you solve by moving it out of high schools. Because you know those good people will all migrate to that, yeah. right? And also, like you said, you may not be able to regulate as much. On the other hand, uh, one of the big problems in high school football, this is a really practical one, is 
again, this gets back to the cost of it and the expense. So many high school football teams cannot afford to have an athletic trainer at their practices and all their games, Mm -hmm. which is like a bare minimum sort of thing. You'd like to think that maybe uh, if you had fewer, more elite private teams, that would be part of what was required and they'd be able to afford to do it. Maybe it would go the other way and you would Mm -hmm. have even less oversight. I do think that that's one of those things where if you can't afford to have this, you shouldn't be playing the sport at all. Mm -hmm. I think I've come to the point where I think that there should be a movement to end high school football, but it can't be a movement from the top down or it will inherently fail. I think that's where I finally come on this. So so some of the people you interview, like the people on a person by person level who are running for school board, Mm -hmm. I just think that's going to be the far more effective way to go about this, even if they lose, right? than it would be to try to like, I don't know, like meet with the Surgeon General. Look, it's one of those things where it's so embedded in American culture. And again, baked it, into the cake it's of American completely culture. baked into the cake. I mean, most of us cannot imagine high school without football, without assemblies, without pep rallies, without Friday Night Lights. And I do think too, it's, it's so beloved. You're right that if it was some sort of top down say, okay, this is over tomorrow, there'd be so much resentment. And as we see in larger politics, instead of people having time to sort of debate and educate themselves and perhaps change their minds for the right reasons, you actually close people's minds. If yeah. you come at people aggressively, if I, if I, part of why I wrote this story is I wanted to help people think about this issue. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to just wag a finger like a columnist and tell mm-hmm. them this is dangerous and bad and you shouldn't do that. Like um, 800 words about why it's yeah, bad it from your it perspective. It, it, it doesn't yeah, move person, the needle. You no, know, a person who loves high school football will immediately just shut off and feel mm-hmm. defensive about it. And, and I do think, you know, like I said, it's not a black and white issue. There's a lot of shades of gray here. And I think it's important that people discuss it, that people debate, they talk about it from the ground up. And, you know, we're already seeing the first step of that is individual families and parents deciding this is not right for my son. People voting with their feet. Exactly. And I think the next step of it will be this. It'll be local level schools, school boards, school administrators, whether it's in one school or a district of schools, debating this. Then you'll see people taking action on it. And then you may see that spread. But if it ever happens where we lose high school football or we see a lot less of it, I think it will be that slow, organic, bottom-up process you're talking about. The article is called Friday Night Lights Out. It's by Patrick Ruby, H-R-U-B-Y. It's over at Vice Sports. We will have a link to it in the description of this podcast. Absolutely essential, best of 2016 reading. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Man, Patrick, you are such a pro, man. You know, the one thing that would totally change it a lot faster would be if they, when they come up with the test for CTE and living brains, the first person that studies a high school team and they find like 10% or 5%, America would freak out. You see, that's also an interesting debating point, though, because you show in your article that we see that people who played high school football. I mean, it's not right. even close. I mean, right. like not, z- zero have it who didn't and 21 out of 66 it was, brains. It was something like, yeah, so it was the, the, the numbers were a little different. So like with former NFL players I looked at, it's something of like 95, it's like mm-hmm. 93. Of former college, I think it's like 56, it's like 45, something like that. It's pretty high. And then high school, it's only like six out of, I think, 25 or 26. But six out of 26 is still a pretty high percentage if that was holding across the entire yeah. spectrum of high school football. If that was true, like one in five, Five, one in six high school football players shows the signs of CT in their brain, people will freak the f- 
out yeah. if that is ever shown. It's going to take like a billionaire though subsidizing to have yeah, even though those tests are so expensive. Yeah, I know. I mean, they're still and they're still working on trying to do them and validate them right now. It's we're still a couple years off from that, but there's a lot of promising stuff happening on that front. I've got my choice words, and it's about sports in 2016, just a year of joy and resistance while the world burned. Look, it is widely accepted that 2016 has been the most vile year in memory on every conceivable level, a train wreck contained inside the world's biggest dumpster fire. But amidst the swirl of venom, political excrement, and personal tears, it's worth savoring the fact that in the world of sports, tragedy has not been the defining characteristic. On the field, the sports world has been an oasis of uplifting escape. And off the field, allegedly apolitical players have charted a high-profile path of resistance that our normal political channels have failed miserably to articulate. Between the lines, this year will always be remembered for the numbers 3-1, to and the way those digits became the prologue for two of the most epic comebacks in sports history. Two curses were broken by two long-suffering teams in two Midwestern cities, leading to two parades that were less celebrations of championships than they were celebrations of community. I'm talking, of course, about the NBA's Cleveland Cavaliers and Major League Baseball's Chicago Cubs. The Cavs were the first team to ever come back from a 3-1 to deficit in the NBA Finals and did it while competing only against the Golden State Warriors, the greatest regular season team in the history of the NBA. Facilitating this miracle was LeBron James, who led both teams in points, assists, rebounds, blocks, and steals. The most remarkable one-person performance for my money in NBA history. The Cubs saw the Cavs' drama and raised them, not least of all by beating the Cleveland Indians in the process. Even those of us distraught about all this year had taken from us had to feel a buzzy joy at the sight of Cubs third baseman Chris Bryant grinning as he fielded the final out of the series and then throw the ball as his feet slipped underneath him on the wet field. That was the cap on what was the greatest Game 7 in the history of sports, possibly just edging out the very Game 7 that the Cavs needed to beat the Warriors a few months earlier. Cleveland, after winning the city's first title in any sport since 1964, gave us a victory parade for the Cavs with more people, 1.3 million, than the entire population of the city itself. Chicago Cubs fans, celebrating their first title since Mark Twain was a working writer, gathered 5.5 million people for the Cubbies, the seventh largest gathering of humans in history. But the on-field miracles weren't just found in those two series. This year also gave us the greatest WNBA finals in history between the Minnesota Lynx and Los Angeles Sparks, coming down to the last possession. The 2016 Rio Olympics burnished the legends of Usain Bolt and Michael Phelps. They also showcased the futuristic artistry of gymnast Simone Biles, the groundbreaking swimming of Katie Ledecky and Simone Manuel, and the unbelievable performance 
from Edge of Sports podcast guest, swimmer Anthony Irvin, who won gold in the 50 meters 16 years after his last gold medal. But sports was more than just escape and a smile in 2016. We also saw athletes use their platform to do something that politicians and the mainstream media refuse to do. Speak truth to power. This is not just the story of San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick, his anthem protests, and all that they sparked. There are new voices every day, standing with Standing Rock, calling out police violence, and being proud voices against sexism and homophobia. For me, this year of resistance started to take shape in June with the funeral of Muhammad Ali, organized by Ali and his wife Lonnie over the last 15 years of his life. I was in Louisville with my producer Dan Bloom that entire weekend, and I can testify that it was a celebration of fighting hatred, standing up to anti-Islamic bigotry, and the importance of using sports as a platform of resistance. And I am utterly convinced that the national appreciation of Ali's life influenced everything that would come. I know it mattered to LeBron James, who stood on stage at ESPN's ESPY Awards with Carmelo Anthony, Chris Paul, and Dwayne Wade and said, I know tonight we're honoring Muhammad Ali, the GOAT, but to do his legacy any justice, let's use this moment as a call to action for all professional athletes to educate ourselves, speak up, use our influence, and renounce all violence, and most importantly, go back to our communities, invest our time, our resources, help rebuild them, help strengthen them, help change them. We all have to do better, end quote. Ali's death also mattered to Colin Kaepernick, who wore a t-shirt with Muhammad Ali's image before his game against the Buffalo Bills. And when asked why, he said, Ali was someone that fought a very similar fight and was trying to do what is right for the people. And for me to have someone like that come before me, that's huge. He's someone that helped pave the way for this to happen. What he did and what he stood for, people remember him more for that than they do as a boxer. I can't let him die in vain. I have to try to carry that on and try to fight that same fight until we accomplish our goal, end quote. Ali's inspiration also mattered to Swin Cash, Maya Moore, Tamika Catchings, and all the WNBA players who took a knee against police violence and challenged their own league's right to find them for their free speech. But Ali's death was, of course, just one catalyst that sparked this awakening. Also decisive was the way people off the field, people who aren't athletes, ordinary folks whose names we do not know, responded to the police killings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, demonstrating, holding vigils, and when necessary, facing tear gas and arrests. Then Kaepernick took his knee, and it spread dramatically across the country, from Beaumont, Texas, to Seattle, Washington, to Prince George's County, Maryland, from football players, to volleyball players, to cheerleaders. A particularly powerful moment was soccer star Megan Rapino taking a knee in solidarity with Kaepernick and saying, Being a gay American, I know what it means to look at the flag and not have it protect all your liberties. It was something small that I could do and something that I plan to keep doing in the future and hopefully spark some meaningful conversation around it. It's important to have white people stand in support of people of color on this. We don't need to be the leading voice, of course, but standing in support of them, that is something that's really powerful, end quote. This courage was contagious, but this courage did not only reach the young. The highlight of this year for me 
was on this podcast, finally interviewing Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. The Louisiana State University All-American was kicked out of the NBA after protesting the anthem in 1996 while a member of the Denver Nuggets. Since then, he has been largely silent. The emergence of Kaepernick, though, and the conversation it sparked gave him new life, even bringing the two of them together for a terrific photo and leading to our interview. Abdul Raouf explained to me why he spoke out 20 years ago, and these are the words I will carry with me in 2017 and beyond. Here are the words of Abdul Raouf on this podcast. He said, I realized at a young age that I had to break these chains because I felt that there were things I wanted to say, things that I saw were unjust. And I said to myself, why am I afraid? Why am I a coward? Why can't I communicate this? And I had to slowly begin a process of doing that eventually led to protesting the flag. Important to my decision was the writings of Arundhati Roy, the Indian political activist and author. And she said, once you see something, you can't unsee it. So to be silent, to say nothing, is just as political an act as speaking out. Either way, you're accountable. So we're not safe through our silence. Actually, the politics of silence is a negative one. We're still accountable. And I said, I don't want to be on that side of history. I want to stand up for principles, and I want to live and die with a free conscience and a free soul, whether anybody likes it or not. I'm not always going to be right. I'm not always going to be eloquent. But I'm always going to try my best to stand up for what's right and what's just, whether people like it or not. So I began that process, and that's where it's taken me. And I don't have any regrets. Despite all of the backlash and all of the setbacks, a setback ain't nothing but a setup to a comeback. End quote. Yeah, this year was a setback. But there are also powerful moments of resistance on and off the field. And it's comeback time in 2017. And now it's time for our Just Stand Up Award. This week, it goes to the UCSB, that's University of California at Santa Barbara women's basketball team. That's begun kneeling during the national anthem. They are silently protesting police brutality and oppression, either by kneeling or sitting during the playing of the anthem. It's more than half of the Santa Barbara women's basketball team. This is the Kaepernick influence alive and well. But I said just half of the Just Stand Up Award goes to the women's basketball team. I really want to give the other half to the University of California Santa Barbara athletic director, John McCutcheon, for the public letter he sent to the Booster Club that they are absolutely dependent upon for funding. This is not a huge athletic department. And I want to read what he wrote because apparently he got a lot of letters and a lot of emails who are not happy with the actions of the women's team. And this is what McCutcheon wrote in part. He wrote, We understand that many of you are deeply offended that they have chosen to make this statement during the playing of our national anthem. Some of you have been moved to no longer support the team, and we respect your position. Others, however, have supported their act of peaceful demonstration of their beliefs, and this we respect as well. It's not for me to attempt to convey why they feel so deeply compelled to do so, other than to say it is their way of expressing concern and support for advances in the many areas of social injustice that exist in our world today, end quote. 
That's John McCutcheon, the athletic director of UC Santa Barbara. I have no idea what his history is. For all I know, I'm going to get a bunch of letters or emails saying, you don't know the real McCutcheon, man. And I get that because I know that being an athletic director can be a very dodgy business. But I got to tell you, I loved that letter. And that's exactly what an educator, which in theory an athletic director is supposed to be, should say. That's our Just Stand Up Award for this week. And hey, I want folks to call in and tell me what you think the sports and politics story of the year was. Give us a ring. 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. Call us up. Leave a message. Tell us what you think the sports story of the year is. We'll play it on the air. Hey, for everybody out there listening, for my producer, Dan Bloom, for my associate producer, David Tigaboo, thank you so much, Patrick Ruby, for coming on. Remember, Seattle, January 5th, I'll be interviewing Michael Bennett on stage at Town Hall Seattle. Michael Bennett for the Seattle Seahawks, one of the most thoughtful political athletes we have. Everybody out there in Edge of Sportsland, thank you so much for listening. We are out of here. Stay frosty, people. Peace. Peace.